Welcome to People of Purpose, a podcast series of interviews with people doing meaningful work and living with heart. The series is hosted by Joanna Scott, and guests come from nearly every field you can imagine. People of Purpose sits under the website Make Do Co. For more content, visit wearemakedo.com.au. Lawrence Goldstone is well and truly bred to be a businessman. With years of consulting work under his belt, he eventually got the itch to do something, well, different. In 2006, with a cohort of consulting buddies, he founded The Difference, an organisation designed to disrupt business as usual. The firm works with leading organisations in the business, government and non-profit sectors, tackling their most complex challenges in a collaborative, creative environment. The Difference works to bring together the right people, create the right environment and the right problem-solving process, taking the project from workshop mode to communication stage, ensuring real-world change in the issues they tackle. Got it? Stay with us if not. Lawrence is here to explain the how, why and what they do at The Difference. Lawrence, welcome to People of Purpose. Very happy to be here. Lawrence, I want you to cast your mind back to the early 2000s, pre The Difference, and professionally and personally you were exploring a lowercase different way of doing things. And you said, I started delving into personal development and some odd choice book readings. This sparked an interest in psychology, behaviour, NLP, language, communications, presence, passion and much more. What were you learning back then? Uh, more about myself uh, as much as uh, strategies around others and understanding more about others. And, and what I mean by that is you take for granted in certainly an early part of a consulting career that you just get passed through stages of, in some ways, learning on the job, learning as you go, but learning a very uh, f- flattened or singular approach to, to business and business problems. Um, what I started to learn for myself was more around people and how people work and how people learn and how people explore and how people engage. And I realized that I was actually mostly passionate around that in my personal life. And if I go in, into my backstory, I was always a very independent, outgoing, social-based person. And it was, the question was, how do I bring that into the work that I, that I do? Um, and started to recognize that I didn't know myself as well as I thought I did. Um, there were opportunities for me and I, I, the, the sort of people psychology and how people learn and different modes of learning group was something I was getting exposure to through uh, some of my work and certainly some of the readings and some of the experiences I got to go on really helped me sort of get more interested in that field. And so I was reading some background info on your early work. So this was something you were exploring personally, but professionally you were working as a consultant and I got the sense that you had a love-hate relationship with that culture of consulting. Am I on the mark there? Yeah, very much so. I, I, I was fabulously privileged in uh, the early part of my career to uh, work all around the world. And I think I got to work in something like, I counted 28 different countries wow. um, by the time that I was uh, sort of mid-20s. And that's a, a pretty incredible opportunity, although I will caution that for most of those countries, I saw an airport, a taxi, a hotel room, and an office, um, not much of the country. But it did offer me um, an interesting perspective into consulting the life of, of a consultant. Um, but to, even towards that last question, what it, it, what it provided to me, especially when you meet a lot of people 
not from native language and native tongue, uh, there's a sort of central part of language that, that connects and that um, I started to get quite interested in. And I would say it probably softened my language from being a little bit too, I'm going to use the word bullshit bingo, <laughs> feel free to edit that out later, um, and to, in, into more what was I actually trying to say and how was I trying to communicate to people in different countries given the work that I was doing. Mm. So it made you be more accountable to what you were actually I became more aware, I guess more accountable to um, the intent of what I was trying to convey, but I realized very quickly that assumptions in language, uh, particularly, have a huge impact, both in terms of how people feel, how they react, as well as what you're trying to get across. And that happens in, you know, between English speakers in, from different cultures. That happens probably alone. even more so <laughs> yeah. through English speakers, because I think we, um, especially in business and con in consulting, um, not to uh, put any of my colleagues into a bucket, but sometimes try and use uh, language or, or, or we use words and phrases that don't necessarily mean anything. Right. We use that as an excuse to, to not have to delve into the things that we're getting into. Uh, and that, but that's pretty hard to get out of when you're doing um, project-based work and client-based work in solving particular types of strategies uh, or engagements. You, are, you do fall into... Uh, a kind of a similar trap around using language that, that just has become patterned um, to mean things that you're trying to actually change. Throughout this time, you were thinking of doing things differently. You were already aware that the model wasn't quite working in your mind. And then in 2006, you went on to create the difference. And just hearing you talk then, I'm hearing, you know, you have all these things you're experiencing professionally and you wanted to align your life with that. So you wanted your personal life and your professional life to be one pursuit of your passion. What was so unique about what you created? Um, there were a few of us. So we'd been doing this work or similar parts of, of the work we do now um, at previous organization. And we'd been doing that for the last five, 10 years um, and for some of my other business partners for longer. Um, for us, the desire to create the next phase of this was to see what we could do with it. Uh, in a consulting organization, the work that we do started to feel quite siloed into particular streams of work, particular industries, and particular outcomes of focus that were more aligned to um, the bigger organization rather than the clients that we were working with. So for us, it was an ability to say, what can we create? What's possible? What can we do? We're all really passionate around the work we did. Um, we felt that there was the right time in the market for us and great relationships. Uh, and we wanted to see what, you know, what was possible. And it was a nice, uh, an amazing moment that doesn't happen quickly. It happens yep. over many conversations, several, you know, several bottles of red wine quite often, on balconies overlooking water, playing with an imagine if and what if. Um, and it just felt like it was the right time, the right place and the right set of people um, to, to have a go and to, you know, to see what we could do. You speak very highly of, of the founding team, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was Kenneth Roberts, Naomi Roberts, and Justin Homer, who joined a little bit later. And so the four of you um, were, the, were the founding team, and you said about them, the strength of the difference was always in our diversity, diversity of skill, personality, and thought. Whilst being core to the bone in what we collectively agreed on, the combination was powerful. What was the energy like in those early days? 
I'm smiling because <laughs> remembering uh, energy comes in different ways. There were some, we are very three, four very different personalities, all with a central belief in the possibility, the power, and the potential of the work that we do. Um, and myself, Kenneth, and Naomi were great, great friends. I didn't know Justin. Um, Kenneth and Naomi knew Justin. That was just fortuitous timing um, that's turned out, and he's one of my greatest friends, uh, friends now. And for us, those those early moments of uh, setting up the business and, and doing work together and working out what our visions were and what our views were, they were all really aligned. It was just it was more following our hearts in terms of what we felt we could create, given the knowledge and background we had in this work. And we fought like cats and dogs at the same time. Um, but it never became personal. It never became too personal anyway. Um, <laughs> it, was, like it, it, was, it was vibrant. Um, the first, certainly the first year or two of the business when we started to bring others into it and started to grow, um, we always had a lot of fun. Our strength of personalities are quite strong and we're all very aligned to a common outcome, but we have different paths of, of getting there. Uh, and respect was, was really high, but it was like being in business with your best friends. Mm -hmm. and, and that sense of possibility of doing that was we could take on anything and that conveyed to our clients in the way that we, we had similar, we have similar cultural attributes that we never necessarily talked about around how we lead, how we see the world. We just knew that we were, you know, being great friends, we were similarly aligned with all those connections. Um, but actually in terms of how we lead, wanted to lead a business, create a business, be in relationship with clients, be in relationship with our community of contractors and professionals that we get to work with was, was amazing. And those first few years were, were an incredible part of our, of our DNA, taking something that had already existed, recreating it to some degree, but starting to say, what do we love about what we had and what, do, what else do we want to create? And as that started to get bigger and grow, having to recast that and say, where are we now and what do we want to maintain, but what do we want to stop um, within our system too was, was phenomenal. And uh, we just wrote a book recently, um, a series, actually less of a book, more of a series of chapters, trying to recapture our DNA and our background, and our experience, because you get to a point in your growth and scale where people want to know those stories, but mm -hmm. it gets further and further away from the truth and the source. So we undertook that exercise with our whole team to recreate that set of stories and chapters and going back to those founder stories reminded me of some of those early moments mm -hmm. and there was a spirit there was a play there was a playfulness in how we approached it the risks that we took the the way we treated each other that i never want to lose and for me mm -hmm. that is part of the difference and i read one of those chapters and you have captured that spirit and i got a real sense of the feeling in those days that you know you did have like you and the founding team and your early hires all had deep roots in the business consulting world. So you weren't sort of outsiders coming in and trying to do something. You, you had the relationships and you credited your strong relationships um, in the Australian market and you won some early big clients of Commonwealth Bank and Optus. But I also got the sense, you know, you, you had these relationships, you had these big wins, but you're also doing something very different. How was the difference as a, as a business and as a concept perceived by your peers in those early days? We were lucky because we did have some amazing relationships with clients that wanted to work with us. And what we realized early as we were breaking out into the market and as any new person setting up a business, uh, validity and having a market that gives you work rather than says, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, the proof is in the, 
is in the pudding, right? It's in the having work, being able to deliver it, and then sustaining it. Um, I would say the strength of our relationships is the business, or was the business in those early days. Because people followed us and, and went with us because there was something that we had in the way that we approached their work in the fact that we would make them the center of our universe to, to that we wanted to make them successful, not ourselves successful. We would be successful as a result of them you know, being seen within their organizations of doing something that had outcome and so the action work and was the, the, the work advertising <laughs> was the advertising we never went to market we never have really um, most of our work is through word of mouth through repeat clients through relationships um, that's changing slightly over the years now that we've become a much bigger organization and uh, have an ability to leverage a partnership with PwC where we've now sat for six years but in those first three years it was very much a sense of family of the small boutique kind of disruptors, but the work we do is enabling other people. It's not have, we don't have an answer. Um, the difference isn't another method that says, here's how you do X. We have a process and a system that enables groups to come together to take ownership of their own really complex issues, where there's multiple stakeholders, multiple opinions, different ways of looking at a problem for us to help them to take ownership and control of their own solutions. So facilitators in the lightest sort of sense were a process, an enablement to allowing them to take ownership of their own outcomes. And that's a really challenging value proposition to a market because it basically says, you're gonna pay us to help you <laughs> to solve your own Find problems. Your own right? And it's kind of funny <laughs> in that sense, but our space enables people to think differently. The way we approach work enables people to think differently. It's, um, it, it goes to the old Einstein quote, um, that people have used to death around the same people uh, trying to solve problems with the same level of thinking that, or consciousness that went into creating it, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's kind of reused that, but that's very much at the heart of what we do. We bring systems thinking approach in. We bring in design thinking before it was a thing called design thinking. We bring in elements of psychology and process and arts, and mostly we remove the distractions that otherwise would be prevalent in decision-making and compress a process that would normally take weeks or months into, into days. Now, days of delivery, but not days of planning. Uh, weeks of planning to get to bringing groups from 30, 50, 100, 200, whatever, together to solve and align around a complex problem is really interesting and intriguing, but you have to change the conditions. And actually, there are some real conditions to being successful um, around an organization being ready to think differently. Everyone says they, let's think differently, yeah. let's have out-the-box thinking, let's break through and... We're then not challenge them and then... And then challenge them, right? Because we don't have the right people in the room. So if the CEO or the executive aren't willing to be in the room and commit, and that could be for two or three days um, over, you know, full time, then maybe the issue isn't important enough in wanting to be solved in a different way. Mm -hmm. So some of this is changing the conditions of how we learn, how we explore, how we play, rather than going straight to how we try and resolve the thing. Because we're not changing the level of thinking or consciousness that went into the thinking of that problem. So part of our work is really giving people the chance to explore, to play. Now the inherent within that is we flatten a hierarchy without saying we flatten a hierarchy. We allow people to bring the whole selves into the work we do and their passions and who they are and the spirit of individuals rather than saying, we're going to do that and tell me about yourself and how do we bring that through. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge people and emotive side to the work that we do in trying to solve really rational problems that have a high degree of 
political or emotional complexity, which makes them complex. I mean, that's why they're complex. If it was really simple to solve, then maybe our process isn't the right way to apply it, but also it probably would have been solved previously. Um, and then, as you, you said earlier on, it's around how do you then start to communicate that and share that and align that and have a common story. And for me, the common story goes right into the heart of the oldest, you know, storytelling being one of the oldest forms of communication. Mm -hmm. But I feel that we've lost the art of storytelling. So how do we bring that and play um, and exploration into core business? D despite this strong foundation that you had, you still left a really great job to go out on your own and start, these, start your own company. Was that a big decision for you to make? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about what was in your heart and mind at the time. I think I was more the agitator of us doing that with, certainly with Kenneth and Naomi, um, because none of us actually had much to lose at the time. I certainly didn't. I had been in Australia for three years. I'd left my life back at home and I was exploring and looking for the challenge of creating something new. And I was hungry, passionate and energetic and wanting to create. Um, and, we know, and we knew we had something and we knew we had uh, the ability to, to do something. So I don't think it was that big a decision. Whenever you look to do that, there's all, you always make the decision feel bigger than it is. Yes. That's my experience. The well. risk was we go back to doing exactly what we were doing before, likely paid the same in the same business or another business that wanted to do the same thing. So when it came down to the what were we actually risking, it was the fear of missing out syndrome, right, within our own organization. Because you get to a certain point and, you know, I'd been with that organization for six years in two countries and of working and working around the world and loved the people I was working with. but. As soon as we did it, it was incredible, right? It was challenging for the first few months and, you know, working out of each other's living rooms and, uh, you know, before you mature to having a serviced, offer, a serviced office, which is really interesting. And then the service office becomes too small and you move to another one. There was a moment that we moved to a proper big, you know, CBD, thousand square meter space. And that was a serious moment in our small <laughs> little startup business. Um, but it became inevitable that we have to do that at some point for our work. Um, but right back to that first moment, was it risky? Not really. Um, did it feel it? Yeah, massively. Um, but the more we talked about it, the more we kind of knew that it was the right thing to do. In another interview of this in this series, um, John Stein, who's the founder of Betterment, a startup in the US, had a similar experience to you and that's how he looks at risk now. He says, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? Okay, I can deal with that and I'm fine with that. And, and then he does it. And, and like you said, it's often not as bad as, as you're expecting. It might feel risky, but actually the risks are not as great as we sometimes perceive them to be. Absolutely, and I think you know, certainly over the last four years, we've we've expanded our businesses and types of business services into new areas with that same approach and mentality that that says we know it feels right we know it to be right and we fully believe it so let's just make it happen mm -hmm. we never built a business plan for any of the last sort of growth parts of our business it made sense and we knew it was the right thing for us to do sometimes your gut tells you it's the right thing and you have to follow it uh, in a conscious way but you alluded to that earlier um you said that the proof is in the work. So while you can plan and you can talk about ideas and different ways of doing it, until you're doing it, you're really, you're really not proving your ideas. And before this interview, we're talking about some of the clients that, that you work with. And you started off with business clients. That was your, your foundation. But you've since moved 
to work with government and you also work with other um, activist groups. Why is there such an appetite for the kind of work that you do? You know, it's, it's almost, it's still new, but it's, it's very much accepted now and, and desired. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's that new. I would, okay. say, uh, I would say people have always wanted to form tribes or collectives to think differently about doing work. I think why we've been able to grow and, and why it's become more and more mainstream, this is a very, this is a very human-centered process without calling this human-centered design, right? Um, but this is about people. This is about people working with people to solve complex problems. So this is the oldest format of work that's been around for centuries, millennia, around people coming together. What we've become really conditioned at is being time poor, trying to rush to decisions, um, becoming very top-down and executive-led, and then wondering why we can't implement some of those decisions through an organization or make complex change happen. Um, and I think part of this process taps into a response to some of that. We allow people to slow down to speed up. We allow people to have a long train of thought, probably the longest train of thought around their business, their identity, their why, uh, before they try and get to the solving piece. And it's a common, it's a common piece of feedback that people come to us with which is that was great next time can we just do the last bit the reality <laughs> is you can't yeah. if you try and jump to the last bit it's that exploration that scan that ability to think more laterally to learn something new to take the time out to to really understand the issue and play with some possibilities some suppose some what ifs some scenarios to be an individual and get everything out that was on your chest, to work it out into some groups, to see what everybody else thinks, that stops ideas from being my idea to being our idea, that allows a group to start to play with what was good and what drops away. This is a group process, and what we're doing is enabling people to actually be respected and to be people in a business context around solving a problem and not trying to rush to the first answer. This isn't death by democracy, this doesn't work for everything, but this can be applied, I would say, across any spectrum of industry or issue, as long as it is complex, as long as there are multiple stakeholders, and as long as they want to follow a different approach and are willing to go on a bit of that journey of themselves, there are huge rewards to be gained on the back end. And I think that's why clients and government, my God, um, talk about an archaic system that, that really does need um, looking at, but it's complex, it's, it's had, you know, generation upon generation upon generation building upon that complexity and that system that it's not so easy to just say, we should knock this all down or this is stupid or why does it work this way? It works for a reason. And we've got to be able to tap into that and be cognizant to it and take the whole ecosystem and systems approach method of looking at everything that's happening because it's not always just the thing that you're trying to solve that is stopping it being solved. And it's not always the people that you think that need to be in the room to solve it that are the best people to be in the room to solve it. Mostly they are, but it's also who else can we add into this? And how do you have fun while going through that process? How, does it, how do you remove some of the stress from something that is really highly complex and emo emotive and challenging to actually have a bit of fun with the problem as well? Mm. And that's always been a big spirit in this, whilst getting some serious work done. Can you provide an example of maybe a past client? I know some of the, th the things you work on are quite... Um, confidential so maybe you can't talk about all of them but is there an example of complexity that you can talk about and, and how you've broken that down and how you've got the team on board and and got people collaborating on a problem 
Well, the way that we approach, um, and we've got a number of different parts of our business. So if I talk about the kind of, to, to your question there around solving a complex problem, it starts in the way that we set up the team to think about if we're gonna bring a bunch of people together in a month, two months from now, and that could be 50, 60, 70 people to solve what we think is this problem. How do we get a cross-section of that group of people that we're gonna to bring together right at the beginning to think about what they think needs to be solved and they're the design team that we take on the journey to actually explore what are we trying to solve? What's stopping us from getting there? What do we need to bring in the room in order to think differently? Who needs to actually be there? What questions do we need answering? And to help us to sort of scope and design that process. So that design process in itself is vastly different from the usual suspects, the group of exec, or the people tasked with the problem, solving the thing that they want to bring others into. So we've already changed the nature of the conversation in the design and the lead up. In many ways to de-risk, it sounds very simple, Right, this sounds ridiculously simple, but most organizations don't work that way. They'll give it to a team that could be the HR team or the business team or the, the leadership team or a you know, events team to design the thing that they then want others to come on a journey with. But what happens is we haven't thought about it from all different perspectives to actually the, the design process is a microcosm of the event in its own, in its own right and its own sense. Uh, playing with those conditions and those stretch and you know, de-risks but also sets up the event for success. Usually the thing that people start to come in to scope and to say that they're trying to solve is part of the thing that they end up solving, of course, but it's often much more. And actually when you get 50, 60, 70 people together talking about a problem, there's other stuff that's happening too that you have to be agile and flexible and have the ability to, to, to bring into our work. So that could work for new strategies, new market entries. It can work for getting um, cross-government agencies together looking to solve a really big systemic issue that has not been solved before by bringing in different parts of the system that could be from agencies, from corporate, from community, from um, peak bodies, from uh, judiciary, for example, that would never normally be in the room at the same time, mm -hmm. think about how we solve that problem. Now, that multiple set of vantage points of thinking of different levels of hierarchy, but people who own the, the, the issue working together for two or three days has a much better chance of success, I would say, because you've got the whole system in play, than just getting the group of leaders together who are going to solve the problem because everyone talks about each other. If only they knew what they needed to do, and it's that, you, know, it's, you learn more about your own organization than people within it. It's empathy building, but it's, it's about building connections. And actually, if you talk about what sets up for success, our design planning is, less, is, is as much about the event itself that we're gonna deliver as what happens next. Because arming people with the ability of when they leave this thing having made some decisions, what story do they tell? What conversations do they have? Who needs to be engaged? How do we not then make this just something that gets thrown out in PowerPoint or put on a website that people don't access and we think that that's communication? Mm. How do you want people to have a story to start that change conversation? It depends on obviously what you're trying to solve as to what means uh, and what media you use to do that. But starting to think much broader than just a moment of time, that moment of time is a catalyst, is a... Uh, an incubator of, uh, of thinking and ideas, but it's what happens next. And the environment of this problem-solving occasion is very important. Earlier on, you were showing me around 
your space here and that you transform it for every project. Can you talk more about how the environment can shape this methodology and, and help people work through problems? Well, by design, the environment in our workspace is feels very different to that of traditional workspaces. And uh, we're excited that it's actually starting to become more normal um, around co-working spaces and uh, you see ABW and open space starting to happen into corporates. But our space is designed to be flexible, um, to enable us to move it and change it for any needs of any particular session. It's built in using different modes of learning. So we use music, um, we use visual graphics and visual arts, um, we use written and oral communication. We get people to work individually as well as in teams. Um, here in Sydney, we've got space that we can allow 100 people to come together um, and work in a space that feels very different, it's very human. There's, there's organic materials by design in there. There's lots of natural light by design in there. There's every space feels like it's a whiteboard space. There is the use of technology in there too, but that doesn't distinguish from people picking up the pen and writing on the board and saying, actually what I'm talking about is this. Somebody else picking up another pen and adding to that. All of that is designed to help people get their ideas out to start to do work with it. And you know, we, we play sometimes that it feels like a, a kindergarten on steroids. When you come to the door, it's playful, there's music playing, um, but serious work gets done. And this is you know, a place that if the environment doesn't support the ability to do work and isn't humanistic, then applying a humanistic process on top of that would feel a little bit disingenuous. So space is everything. Everything speaks from the books that you put out to the stimuli around this, this space to the furnishings. And it, and it does change. You, you mentioned before blank canvas. We don't really brand our space. Our space allows us to brand to the organization that we have in. And this goes back to one of those very first principles and tenets of our business when we set up. It's not about us. Our success is our client's success. We're looking to amplify their value, get them the outcome that they otherwise couldn't, to partner with them over large engagements for you know, one, two, three years, or to really help them with that huge sort of breakthrough piece that they need, or to help them to get better alignment, or to build better understanding into an issue. Because we play across a spectrum and a life cycle of projects, engagements, organizations, and nobody's starting from the same place. I get the sense that you're always evolving this business and looking to new ways of thinking and doing, and I think that's crucial in a world that has changed so much already and continues to change. What are some recent sources of inspiration in your life that you look to to evolve this business? I've become very um, focused on communications in the last few years. Um, I guess working with people and seeing the challenge, and I get frustrated with, even in our own organization, not necessarily the difference, but, but still also the difference, that um, how do we, how do you convey with passion and inspiration the things that you come up with? How do you bring people on the journey? We use words like mindset shift and um, you know, really getting people to understand the next evolution in an organization or around a complex issue. So I've become very interested in communications channels and media and uh, I guess I, 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 I'm online a lot. Um, I, I go to various different conferences and I like the play and interaction component of how people are trying to get messages across. And we've been bringing that very much into our work. So we've always had a communications component of the work that we do, a visual communications component. Um, we decided a few years ago that 
rather than that just being an augment to what we do, we're going to set up a communications business alongside what we do. That communications business now has grown for us, you know, massively and we see just unlimited opportunity with it because it's not just another agency. I think there's a communications revolution coming soon for organizations. It's been happening in the outer world, in the external media world that we're all massive uh, consumers of information using our phones, our iPads, the, the way we interact with information, yet internally we're stuck in a 1990s, you know, document-centric website and email overload um, of content, but expecting different results and expecting words like ownership and, as I said, mind, mind shift and, you know. Let's talk about um, your growth. You mentioned you have the comms team, which and just continues to grow, business is strong. You started this business from scratch, and in 2010, you were acquired by PricewaterhouseCoopers. And reading that chapter around your story, you said, we had good times and stressful times. Money is always stressful, and we put ours into the business. This, of course, led to some stressful times and worry. And then you go on to talk about the journey. Um, and since then, you know, you've grown, you now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but an $18 million business with 60 team members across Australia. And I think people are really encouraged these days to start their own businesses or start their own side projects and kind of work on their own things. But there is this practical sense of how can you make it work? And you have done that. But how has your relationship to money evolved in that time? You can't say it's never been important because I think it's always a factor. It's a question of how much and at what time. And I think that's very related to personal circumstance and situation. Um, we were fortunate in that we started the business before families, before we started to have children, and now you know all the founders of this business have got families and have been growing alongside our business, to be honest, too. Um, so I guess maybe that helped us to have more of a mindset that allowed us to take a bit more risk at the time. Um, it, was, it was a bit of a no-brainer for us in how we set up the business. Yes, there was a risk, and there's always a risk when you own your own business that you're kind of only as good as the quarter that you're in, and you... you to look to, to ensure, especially as you start taking on more and more people, you do take more of a concern and a worry and a, um, it, it does affect certain levels of decision making because it's now not just you anymore. And I think there was a subtle shift once we started to hire people, not in a contract sense, but as full-time employees who were bought into this idea too that um, we needed to create something that that had sustainability to it. On the, on the I guess the the, deal with PwC, being X4, the X big four, so coming from a big four organization, we had the benefit of hindsight in foresight of building a new business that we wanted to create that ultimately we saw would one day be back in a big four entity. Ah, so that was intentional. It was semi-intentional, right? As an intentional, timing wasn't. Timing was, you know, it was. we were working with three out of the four big four and many of the big organizations at the time um, in delivering and partnering work with them. So our work has always evolved in and has a, a good uh, complement to professional services and to large engagements. Because we can do the work that we do, but uh, it's the bigger engagements that have an ability to, have a big, you know, to, to allow us to take this to a different audience, to be part of some of the biggest games in town. Our relationships were brilliant and allowed us to grow to a certain size and scale. Our longer term growth was always going to be a bit bigger. 
but those tenants have stayed true to us growing all the way throughout our business growth and holding true to the uh, principles and the uh, sort of the nuance of our small business that was a family and grew out of a certain spirit and way of working and broke some rules and that's why we'd broken out from a big four nasty company into being our own kind of entrepreneurial company. The reality was that we needed to um, align or um, grow back into some form of relationship, whether that be an exclusive one um, or a partnership-based one with uh, companies doing really amazing big programs of work because we wanted to work on the really big complex issues. But to your, back to your question around money it's never dominated and never it ne for us we're fortunate it never dominated we were we were lucky that we managed to grow the business to be sustainable quite quickly and you talk about the team as being a family and you talk about your relationship to cust to clients um, but what's your attitude to work culture what elements do you think are necessary for happy healthy and productive people in the way that we've set our business and this may sound trite, but I don't believe there is a difference between a work culture and um, your culture as an individual of, of how you uh, and an outside of work culture. You spend most of your time here. As I said, we were lucky. We got to build and be in business with some of our best friends. Um, our families were connected. We hung out a weekend. So there was a blurred line between that to start with. And I think that's still there today. Now, maybe that's unhealthy. Um, <laughs> But let's take it for all the positive side of that. Where it gets challenging is bringing new people into that because it can be a little bit of joining that clique, that thing. But there's something really special in how we treat each other because this isn't a hierarchical business. Sure, there is hierarchy in this role. But this is about bringing a spirit and play. We, want, we, we bring in people based on uh, personality and culture and opportunity and potential rather than deep skills in any particular one area. Now that changes into some bits of our business as we start to grow, but this is built off those premises around um, people wanting to be in relationship with each other, bringing their whole selves to work, creating a space that we'd love to work in, um, being able to hang out um, and making sure that we keep fostering that and community and family and all the challenges that go with those things are the DNA of our organization. Uh, this is an amazing place to work. We get to work on some phenomenal topics with some insanely talented people and have fun and, and enjoy ourselves in the process. And somehow we sit there in a big four and, you know, look slightly quirky and slightly different and we wear jeans and, you know, there's play and we use music and it's all the things that big businesses are trying to bring in but we take for granted. I love that, that people can bring them. So, I mean, it's, you said this earlier, it makes sense but it's not common that people would bring themselves, their whole selves to work. I mean, really, is there any other way? But many places don't encourage that. And who would want to work there? It's the hard thing for us. <laughs> it's, I don't think I could ever work in a, in a different way. Now, there's other organizations that you can look to try and bring that into, but this is just how we see, how we want, how we see work should be. And we've managed to create that and still hold on to it. And okay. sure, there's times that you go past that and you feel, oh, I'm out of whack, but you can call it. Mm -hmm. And anyone here can and, mm -hmm. and does quite often. Um, and it's, it's great fun. And, you know, it's fabulous being in relationship with everybody here. And there's a real sense and spirit of identity here. 
Let's finish up on a, re a recent, um, may maybe not so recent, but you um, announced that you're a board member for Oz Harvest. And this is an amazing nonprofit that gathers quality surplus food and distributes, distributes it to people in need. And in that process, diverts the food waste from landfills, so solving a number of problems in one go. What does this organisation mean to you? It means a lot to me for, for a number of reasons. Um, I met Ronnie, Ronnie Khan, who's the founder and, and CEO, um, many years ago to um, a great friend of mine uh, who was working for us and then married into her family, so married her son. Um, and Ronnie is, was sort of five years into the Oz Harvest journey and as a growing not-for-profit had got a board and was having challenges between working with the board. So I started having conversations because Joe had said to me, you need to meet Ronnie and speak with her. It's amazing what they're doing, but they have real challenges between the executive management team and talking about strategy and interaction with, with the board. So I, I started to work with her from a business perspective, kind of partly fell in love with the idea of the business and what it stood for. I'd never really been exposed in a way you know, from, my, from my career perspective of wanting to work in that space. And, but I recognized that we had something to be able to offer. So we did some work with them and um, very proud of that work that we did to help them to create a strategic agenda for a period of their growth. And then a couple of years ago, and we stayed in, in contact, um, we started to talk about what next and uh, doing the next evolution of their strategy. And for the last year, we've been very focused on doing that and realizing that there's more and more that we can bring our work and discipline that's used in government and business and you know big end of town work but the principles have a massive impact into the not-for-profit space and alongside the Oz Harvest piece we've been looking at how can we do more work and bring make more accessible our work in the not-for-profit space so we've been looking at a kind of a dot-org version of the difference and how can we bring our work to bear more into that space so Oz Harvest was a natural alignment for me at that time because we were working with them it's very proud to to then be asked to, to join the board um, to bring uh, some more of our thinking and challenge around a way of thinking, but also helping them with their strategic agenda and growth agenda. Um, I'm delighted to, to have taken a board role with them. Um, and I'm also delighted that we've managed to get the kind of .org version of our business up and running as a proof of concept that I believe has a huge opportunity to do more and to grow, um, to bring these skills and capabilities around bringing diverse groups together to work and solve complex problems in a different approach, of course it would work into that sector, more so to some degree. Yeah, more, you yeah, know, necessary like, there. That's right, you know, in some communities and also, also on some of these big topics, there are hundreds, sometimes thousands of organizations trying with the same goal, competing for a, you know, same set of funds um, and a similar dollar, but not necessarily being able to have a uh, process that allows them to come together in a neutral way, in a safe way, mm -hmm. to actually better what they do mm -hmm. and improve now, wh whatever to whatever outcome that may be. So I'm delighted to be working with Oz Harvest. I'm delighted that our business has matured enough to grow of doing not just pro bono work, but now actually trying to build a system and a business that can offer more into that space. And yeah, watch this space. Hopefully we'll be talking more about the .org business in a few years. And so exciting. It's so great to hear that you're evolving the business in that way and it's been such a privilege to sit here with you today and hear about your methodology and ways of working and, and have an insight into your space here. So thanks so much for your time. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find more at wearemakedo.com.au.